are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. We're going to look at verses 16 through 20. And Austin's going to come preach for us. Give you just a second to find it. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Likely some familiar verses here. Starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. Well, um, as we just read, uh, Matthew 28. 16 to 20 is our preaching text for this morning. Probably a super familiar text to many of you, as Buster just alluded to. Great Commission is what it's been called, and gosh, for a long, long time, uh, longer than any of us have been alive. Um, And we're going to let that text kind of ground us this morning as we kind of head into home in this Reset Sermon Series. We've got this week and next week left in the Sermon Series before getting into 1 Peter. And so Matthew 28 is going to kind of ground us in our text this morning about multiplication, all right, multiplication, multiplying. You know, many times when we talk, uh, when churches talk about the desire to multiply, um, whether that be multiply churches or multiply small groups or gospel communities, whatever the phraseology is in that particular church, or multiply volunteers or multiply dollars through giving, uh, you know, towards like a campaign, capital campaign, or whatever the case may be, you know, oftentimes these forms of multiplication they end up rising to the church's fore of consciousness, right? They, they become the focus of the church. And, and oftentimes when we elevate uh, those smaller multiplication desires to the forefront, churches tend to begin ministries that become less about what's best for the spiritual growth of the, of the members and more about what works best becomes like more pragmatic. And what I mean by that is, you know, question, the question shifts from what is best for spiritual growth to what works best to meet our goals and meet our needs. And so ministry becomes very, very much pragmatic. But in the scriptures, although you do have people like Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy multiplying churches and you have encouragements to multiply resources through giving to help out other churches and You have commands to multiply, you know, gifts by having people serve and exercise those gifts. All those are good things. All those are good forms of multiplication. By the way, I'm not knocking those. Those are great. But they're byproducts of the central form of multiplication in the scriptures, and that's to multiply disciples, to make disciples. The church of Christ is commanded to make disciples. Planning churches, launching new gospel communities, you guys stepping into new serving roles as members of this body, you pouring into your kids, you know, the teachings of Christ, you being generous in your giving, all those things, all those forms of multiplication 
all of those are, should stem from our own personal growth, becoming more accurate to the Scripture's disciples, and making disciples in our own lives. Now, it's, it would be helpful if I, you know, maybe um, here defined for you what a disciple actually is, because that's a good word we don't use a lot in our context outside of church context these days. But a disciple literally means one who learns. You're a learner. Generally, the word references in the Bible some specific kind of discipline or learning, or it's based on some specific teacher that that person is following. And it's learning, that learning usually involves a group of learners, a group of disciples following one teacher, one person that's investing in them as disciples. And being a disciple in Jesus' day involved uniting your life to a specific teacher, not just following his teachings, but actually uniting your life to his. And you see this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you know, the Gospel we're in for this morning. And as Jesus is calling these original 12 disciples to him, it involved them abandoning to some extent their former way of life, material possessions, having this completely life-disrupting experience and call upon their lives, and beginning a new life of following their teacher, their rabbi, in Jesus. So being a disciple was to be, yes, a learner, but being a disciple is also to be a follower. You know, you would learn from your teacher, you would physically, literally give yourself to following your teacher, like, you know, a dog follows after a human, so to speak. Not that you're a dog. But you would also metaphorically follow your teacher in the sense that you would obey the lessons being taught by your teacher. You'd follow his example in your life. And you see this all throughout the gospel accounts. The words and teachings of Jesus would require wholehearted obedience and commitment. It's an abandoning of former ways of life and following after the teacher in this new life he's called you to. Jesus is not okay with half-hearted, lazy following. It's not the life he's called us to as disciples. He called the riffraff in the text in the Bible to follow him, and he turned them into committed men and women, radical followers of his life and his ways. And the ways of Christ have not changed in 21st century America. When he calls new disciples today, when he brings people from death to life, those of us who have placed our faith and for salvation in the person of Christ, the call of Christ is to learn from him, to follow his example in every aspect of our lives, to follow his words. We were once riffraff, and God has taken us in Christ, and he has called us to abandon our former way of life and made us into a new creation, sons and daughters of his. So let's just kind of briefly set the scene here in Matthew 28, our text for this morning, as to what's going on here. We're obviously at the end of Matthew's gospel here in Matthew 28. Jesus has risen from the grave at this point in the text. He's been hanging around in his new resurrection body for a handful of days at this point. Earlier in this chapter, he had appeared to Mary Magdalene and directed her in verses 7 and 10 to go tell the disciples to go ahead to Galilee and meet him there. He's going to meet them in Galilee. And so presumably she says this because here they're in Galilee. <laughs> they end up there. She reports that. 
And in verse 16, the disciples have converged here, and they're waiting on Jesus to come to them. And Jesus does come to them. In verse 17, the text says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's a very interesting verse here. And as a side note, this doesn't really have a lot to do with multiplication, but as a side note, I do want to talk about this verse for just a couple of minutes before we go on to talk about making disciples. This verse is weird, but I love it. I love it for a variety of reasons. One, I love it because it reinforces to me the accuracy of the gospel account. What I mean by that is if, if you're trying to make up a story about a guy named Jesus who died and rose from the dead and now has authority over all things, and you're trying to craft a story around his first leaders in his church, you want them to appear strong and valiant and courageous. You want, if you're creating a story, you want them to be the heroes, right, of the story. But here, the first leaders in the local church are still a bunch of doubters, even while staring in the face of the risen Messiah. You would portray them not as this, if you're trying to make something up, but this is real life. This is what was happening. This is who they were. So Matthew left it in, which I love. I think that's great. And then second, the second reason I love it is because of what I just said. It's real life. This is real life. Worship and doubt sometimes coexist in our own hearts, do they not? We love Jesus. We wouldn't deny that deny that we have the desire to learn from him and to follow him and to worship him. But even amidst those deep, true desires to worship him in our hearts, sometimes doubt just kind of creeps into that. And we ask questions like, am I wasting my life? Am I deceived? Is God really who he says he is? Why has Christ not come back yet? He said he was coming back soon. Why has he not come back yet? You know, there's so much brokenness in the world. Where is God in all of that brokenness? All these questions just creep up in us. At least they do in me. And we feel like two people sometimes, right? We feel this inner turmoil in our hearts fluctuating between the deep desires of our hearts to worship Him, but also these deep-seated questions of doubt that also seem to coincide with our desires to worship. You know, it's interesting that this juxtaposition of worship and doubt has actually been used once before in the Gospel of Matthew. It's actually Matthew 14, the account of Peter walking on water. So I want you to flip over there for a minute. Matthew 14, just flip to the left of your Bible. Matthew 14, starting in verse 28. There's a huge storm on the water. We know the story. Huge storm on the water. Disciples are alone in the boats. They're fearing for their lives. And then amidst the storm, they see this figure walking towards them on the water. They think it's a ghost. But as he gets near, they realize that it's Jesus, which is crazy. And then in verse 28, I'm just going to start reading here. and I'm going to read through verse 33. It says this, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, Peter cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, here it is, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat, here it is again, worshipped him. 
saying, truly you are the Son of God. Doubt and worship. Doubt and worship. Peter sees a storm. He's filled with doubts. Jesus rescues him from the storm, and his doubt is transformed into worship. And I think Matthew juxtaposes here doubt and worship at the end of his gospel, even among the disciples staring the resurrected Jesus in the living face, because I believe he wants to make clear to us that the charge Jesus is about to give, the Great Commission, is not only reserved for the spiritually elite. It's not only for those who have perfect faith and perfect worship. If that's you, I'd love to meet you, because it's not me. That it's possible to be used in the disciple-making process, even amidst inner turmoil and doubt that sometimes arise in our hearts. That we aren't sidelined for the cause of Christ because we don't possess perfect faith all the time. Jesus desires worshipers. Desires worshipers. Those that recognize him as the resurrected Christ and devote themselves to his cause and his glory in all the earth, even if that worship is sometimes tainted with struggle and doubt. And then Jesus, side note over, Jesus then gives his final charge in verses 18 through 20 here. I want to read it together again. We're going to look at real closely a few components of it, of 18 through 20, what is now known as the Great Commission. But starting verse 18, let's read it. <coughs> Excuse me. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Church of Christ is commanded to make disciples. Establish that. But how? Now what is most important? in this disciple-making process. Well, Jesus explicitly states two things that are going to be undergirded by one thing, and that one thing is that missional living precedes multiplication. Missional living precedes multiplication. What I mean by that in verse 19, you read that sentence, and, and you may think that the verb in that sentence is go in the Greek, but it's not. It's not go. The verb in the sentence is make not go. Go is actually a participle in the Greek. So we could almost translate that verse, verse 19, is, as you are going, make disciples. The going is assumed. The going is not commanded here. And all of us are going, right? We go every day, probably going too much, honestly. I mean, we're going to work, we're going to school, we're going to ball games, we're going to spend time with friends and family, we're going on dates, we're going on vacations, going to events, going to church, going to take kids to school. We are going, going, going all the time. And Jesus is saying here, hey, you're going, so while you're going, make disciples. Make disciples. Don't just go to fulfill a task, but let your going serve a bigger purpose. Now, disciple-making is not intended to be relegated to like a program on the side that you do during your GC or DNA group and then forget about it the rest of the week. Disciple-making is intended to be integrated into your daily rhythms of life every day, your normal going, your daily going. And Jesus here is also broadening the scope of disciple-making for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew. Geographically, you know, up to this point in 
The Gospel of Matthew, the ministry of the disciples, the ministry of Jesus, has been Matthew 10.6, to the lost sheep of Israel. To the lost sheep of Israel. And now Jesus, with the newfound authority He possesses, which we'll come back to in a second, the mission is now being expanded geographically to all the nations, all the people groups, the ethnes of the world. The scope of the commission now goes as far as the rule of the risen commissioner. And that's all the earth. All the earth. And for some of you in this room, you are being or one day will be called to be going to make disciples in contexts other than Metro Birmingham. I pray for that to happen. I pray for it. You know, many of you are in careers and are working towards careers uh, that can be done in a variety of contexts all over the world. You're not relegated to the U.S. You're not relegated to Birmingham. You can go anywhere with it. You know, there are places in this world I cannot go because I'm a pastor. I cannot get into those places because I'm a pastor unless I, like, lie or something, which I don't want to do because I'm a pastor, right? I'm a believer. But you, as a business person, an accountant, a nurse or doctor, a lawyer, a mom or dad, a writer, a teacher, I mean, you name it, maybe God is calling you to take your skills and career that he has given you and do it in another nation, another context for the sake of making disciples. You know, when we live our living lives on mission every day, understanding that we're always going, and as we're going, we're to be making disciples, when we're living those kind of lives, that's when multiplication starts to happen. You know, plane rides don't make missionaries. Okay? We just had this conversation in the equip class. Sometimes it's easier to share the gospel with somebody in remote Cuba than my own flesh and blood. Right? But plane rides don't make missionaries. All right? Missionaries are made now. Disciples are made now. So we are to be living missionally, going, and as we are going to be making disciples. What does that exactly look like? And how do we know disciples are being made? What's the evidence that disciples are being made? Well, Jesus gives us two here. One, he says baptism is the starting point of multiplication. Baptism. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Right? Baptism is the starting point. Being a disciple assumes preceding conversion. Okay, you were converted to Christ, now you're a disciple of Christ, be baptized now. You can't devote yourself to a teacher, a master, you'll follow unless you previously decided to commit your life to him, to devote yourself to him. So one trusts Christ, becomes a disciple, and is baptized. We want to multiply baptisms because we're multiplying conversions, right? We want people to be coming into this body that don't know Jesus, encountering the risen Christ, beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ, God's saving them, and then they're baptized. That's what we want. That's what we want. I'd rather fill this church full of new converts than church transfers, right? I'm not knocking you if you've been a part of their church. That's great. But I was too four months ago. But new converts, right? You know, baptism appears to be the point of enrollment, so to speak, into discipleship. You know, different churches have different theologies and practices around baptism. But here at Emmanuel Church, our church, we baptize believers. You know, those who have expressed faith in Christ and given evidence that they understand the gospel. Now, that can be subjective, right? We're not the Holy Spirit. We can't see the human heart. But to the best of our ability, guided by the Spirit, we want to baptize those who have demonstrated true conversion, demonstrated true understanding of the gospel. 
And the command of Jesus here is not just to baptize for the sake of baptizing, but to baptize them specifically into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You know, we don't have time to talk about the Trinity right now. I wish we did, but one day, one day we will. Maybe we'll do a whole sermon series on the Trinity. That would be awesome. But belief in a Trinitarian God is unique to Christianity. There's no other religion in the world that would say they worship a God who exists as one God in three persons. It's unique. And when we're baptized, we are baptized into the name, not names, but name, singular, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Demonstrating that there's a a singleness, in a sense, a one-godness among three persons in the Trinity here that Jesus is laying out for us. To quote one commentator I read, I don't have it on the screen, so listen closely. He said, when one is baptized into the name of the Trinity, one professes to acknowledge and appropriate God in all that he is and all that he does for man. One recognizes and depends upon God the Father as his creator and preserver. He receives Jesus Christ as his only mediator and redeemer and his pattern of life. And he confesses the Holy Spirit as his sanctifier and his comforter. Our minds will never grasp fully an understanding of the Trinity. But simply because we don't grasp full understanding of something doesn't make it any less true. I mean, I don't understand how gravity works, right? I don't. Maybe you do. Awesome. I don't. But that doesn't make it any less true, right? And if I deny gravity, the existence of gravity, even if I don't understand what gravity is or how it works, and I jump off a building, I'm going to die, all right? It's just what happens. I don't have to fully understand it for it to be real and have an effect on my life. So the same is true with the Trinity. To deny the Trinity has massive implications for us as believers. One, to deny the Trinity means to deny the faith. To deny that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally God, one God, three persons. We don't have to understand how that works, but that's what the Scriptures teach. So we hold on to that. We believe it because denying it separates us from the faith. So the Trinity is important, all right? And we're baptized as believers into the name of the Trinity. Man, I wish I had more time to talk about that, but I don't. So we're going to keep going. Uh, Coffee is available, all right, from me to you to talk about the Trinity, okay, if you want to talk about it. And if baptism, so moving on, if baptism is the starting point of multiplication, teaching is the sustaining point of multiplication. Teaching. All nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them. You know, we aren't just making converts, we're making disciples. I mean, how often do we have somebody convert to the faith we've been sharing the gospel with, and then when they convert to the faith, we're, we're done. Let's move on to the next project. That's the starting point, all right? That's the beginning. We're not making converts, we're making disciples, learners. And for disciples to be healthy disciples, they need to be taught. Jesus has taught these disciples on the mountain. He's commissioning the taught now. He's saying, hey, you who've been taught now become teachers. The taught now teach. You know, two questions for you. One, are you being taught? Are you learning as a disciple, as a Christ follower? Not just on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis, not just a 
I'm here, here receiving the word, and I'll think about it again next Sunday. Not, that's not what I'm talking about. But daily, what does you being taught look like? Are you in the word? Do you listen to podcasts by men and women teaching you the word? Are you a reader? Are you allowing living or dead men and women to speak into your life on a regular basis through books? How are, you, are you being mentored? You have somebody pouring into your life. How are you being taught? Disciples of Christ are learners. That's literally what the word means. You're a learner. You're one who learns. So how are you learning on a daily basis more the things of the Lord? But then second question, if you're being taught, are you teaching others? You know, I, I, uh, there are men and women who are set aside with teaching gifts to lead and teaching capacities, but all of us are called to teach in some capacity. All of us. So as you're going, are you having conversations with others around the Bible? You know, do you make it a habit to share with those around you what the Lord is teaching you on a regular basis? You know, things the Lord's teaching you are not intended to be hoarded, intended to be shared with other people, taught to other people. Do your conversations with other people progress beyond sports or hobbies or kids or homeschool or Netflix or whatever? into deeper realities that matter more and last longer? Are your conversations progressing to that point? Yeah, we're disciples. We are disciples if we're following Christ, but also we are called to be disciple makers, which involves some level of passing down knowledge of what we're learning. Are you doing that? If you're being taught, are you teaching? You know, I love the um, metaphor sometimes. You know, I have, I have people come into churches I've been a part of and say, I'm just, I'm just here to be a sponge. I'm here to be a sponge. And I get that, and that's awesome. Sometimes you need some, some time to just soak in the goodness of God and be taught the word of the Lord. But if a sponge only consumes water and doesn't wring itself out, it's a bad sponge. Right? Your sponge is not effective. So as you're absorbing as a sponge, you're going to be called at some point to wring yourself out of what you're absorbing. Right? And it's not just teaching, it's not just passing down for the sake of acquiring more information. Sorry, it's not just accumulating more information or, or knowledge, but it's teaching to observe or obey all that Christ has commanded us. You know, the original 11 disciples here taught, by the, they taught the early church to obey. They left this mountain, passed on the faith to other people, telling them to obey. Then the early church took what they learned and passed it down to those under them, how to obey. And we are now recipients of that, a faithful handing down of the faith from men and women throughout generations, generations, generations. Disciples not only gain knowledge, but we take our knowledge of the ways of Christ and live our lives in obedience to it. This is a sermon last week. Doctrine matters because your behavior is ruled by your doctrine, whatever your doctrine is. So we baptize believers, we teach believers. That as they grow into this new life of following Christ, they may have a more accurate and sustaining vision of the one they follow. You can't follow somebody you don't know, right? So we seek to know Christ, the one we're following. But if all we had, if all we had were the commands from Christ, we would fail. We would fail. If he gave the church the task of making disciples of all nations, 
of baptizing and teaching and then ascended to the heavenlies without any aid sent to us, we could not do it. We would fail. It would be futile. and would only lead to frustration. But he didn't just leave us commands to obey. But he declared to us promises that undergird our multiplying efforts. The promises of Christ undergird our multiplying efforts. And the first promise that Jesus gives here is Jesus leaves us the promise that he possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's literally verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In this risen state of Christ over death, possessing this new body, immune to the pains of illness and death, everything has changed. Everything is different now. Jesus now possesses a newfound authority over all things. The limitations of the incarnation no longer apply to Jesus. But he has the supreme authority over all things in the universe. And it's here at the end of Matthew's gospel that all the illusions Matthew has put forward in the previous 27 chapters of Jesus being king, these illusions reach their full culmination. I mean, think about it. The very way Matthew begins his gospel is tracing the line of Jesus to King David. Royalty, the greatest king in all of Israel. Chapter 2, Matthew 2, the Magi come to seek out the king of the Jews. They find help and aid, somewhat, from Herod, a wicked king, in juxtaposition with Jesus, the true king. Jesus, Matthew 21, rides in on a donkey into the holy city, Jerusalem, a kingly entrance, right, into a kingly city. And now here, the risen Christ as king possesses authority over all things. And it's under the authority of this king that we are sent out to make disciples. Jesus is reassuring us that no matter where we go and who we interact with in this world, that he possesses authority over them. That whether or not they recognize it, he is the king over them. They do his bidding. And this is freeing to us as disciple makers. You know why it's freeing to us? Because it means we're released from feeling pressure to conjure up the right words or the right presentation or do the right arm twisting to get somebody to believe Jesus. It's not on us. The initiative's on him. He's the one that has authority over their hearts, not us. Not us. We want to be faithful and then leave it for him to do the work. We're merely sent to do the bidding of our king and he produces what he wills. But not only does Jesus possess authority over all things, first promise. The second promise of Christ is he desires to restore us from past failures. He desires to restore us from past failures. This is a little more implicit here in the text. It's not as explicit, but it's there. I mean, let's just step back from a step for a second from Matthew 28. And let's just remind ourselves of the setting and the context of what's going on right now in this particular story. The last time the disciples had any interaction with Jesus before this point was when they're all running away from him in Gethsemane. They all leave him, except for John. They all flee from him. In his greatest hour of need, no one was with Jesus. 
And he's given directions to the women to gather up all the disciples upon this mountain. I mean, what kind of reception do you think they're expecting from him? It's like when your mom tells you to wait in your room for your dad, right? It's like, hey, go wait in your room when your dad gets home. Like, he'll take care of this. It's like, you know what's coming, right? I mean, you know what's coming in that situation. You've just wrong, been wrong in some sense, and your dad's going to come out and dole out punishment, right? I mean, is that what they're thinking here? I mean, they deserted Christ. Was he coming to chastise them? To punish them? I mean, the dude had just risen from the dead. All right? So a living man, once dead, wants to see them. That's enough to freak anybody out. All right? I can't imagine the thoughts running through their minds at this point, but none of those things are the reception they receive. None of them. Rather, instead of abandoning them after the resurrection as they abandoned him before the resurrection. I mean, Jesus could have risen from the dead and skipped straight to the ascension. He didn't have to hang around for 40 more days, but he chose to. And instead of abandoning them, Jesus spends 40 days with them, bringing restoration to these broken relationships here. The text says Jesus came to them. Jesus spoke to them. Jesus took the initiative of gathering them. And he spoke to them, not harsh words, not words of accusation, not words of disqualification for the mission. But the words he uttered left their failure far behind in the past. The greater reality of the mission before them swallowed up their failure in the final days of Jesus on the earth. On the mission of Christ, past failures do not disqualify you from future mission. Just as with the disciples here, Jesus desires to speak kindly to you. He puts the mission before you. He speaks kindly to you, and he propels you on your way. You know, what do you typically expect Christ to say to you when you fail? Words of accusation? Words of condemnation? I mean, do you expect him to pile on the shame? And Dane Ortland writes in Gentle and Lowly, he says, Jesus does not love like us. We love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we're forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. All the way. And his third promise here, this love to the end is most demonstrated in it when he says that he will always be with us everywhere we go. Jesus promises to be with us everywhere we go. You know, during all the days of us making disciples, church, Jesus is with us. We've been sent in the authority of Christ. We've been restored by the kindness of Christ. And then we also have the presence of Christ with us. Jesus does not say, I will be with you. He says, I am with you. Present, not future. You know, in the great call narratives of the Old Testament, whether it be Abraham or 
Moses or Joshua or Gideon. I mean, the list goes on and on. In each of these call narratives, the one being sent is most comforted by the promise of God's presence. Be strong and courageous, Joshua, or I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Moses, go speak to Pharaoh, for I'm with you. With you. You know, making disciples through this life where we feel alone, there may be some moments that as we're going, we forget that God is with us. That the Spirit of Christ is in us and with us. But Jesus has promised to always be our companion, to always be by our side every step of the way. You know, I love it that from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. That's the beginning. And it's just fitting that at the end of the gospel, it's not the ascension that comes, but the end of the gospel and the gospel of Matthew ends with a reminder that Christ is Emmanuel, that he is with us wherever we go. I think it's even more fitting that our church, this Emmanuel church, a daily and weekly reminder that God is with us wherever we go. He's given us a command, church. He's given us a command, a command to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that he's commanded us. But even more important, he's given us a promise to assure us and to comfort us in our mission. So take great comfort, Christian. Take great comfort that as you are going, and multiplying disciples. The authority of Christ goes before you. The presence of Christ comes behind you. That he is with you every step of the way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you, Father, for your promises to us in Jesus. That in him we are never alone. When Christ came to sit at his rightful place at your right hand, that he sent us an advocate, a comforter, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of Christ, that possesses the heart of God, came to dwell in us and among us and with us. That the Great Commission is not just a command to go, but it's a reminder that one has come. That Christ has come. That he died, was buried, resurrected, ascended, and he will never leave us now because of the Spirit. We thank you, O oh God, for the reminder of your presence with us even to the end of the age. I pray, Father, that in those moments we feel alone, in those moments we feel beat down and tired and filled with doubt, that you just remind us that you are with us in those moments. That your heart and your desire is for us to call out to you, to fall upon your grace and your mercy in Christ. We thank you that the heart of you is bent towards grace towards us. That in the scriptures, we don't have to provoke you to extend grace. We have to provoke you to anger. We don't have to provoke you to extend mercy towards us. Thank you, O oh God, for your rich, the richness of your kindness towards us in Jesus. 
May we walk in obedience. May we learn from you. Walk in obedience to what we learn. And may you just be glorified in us, in our church. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.